Before we get started, you should probably know that the following podcast contains strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Also, it will almost certainly contain spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I'm a filmmaker and a podcaster and a bunch of other stuff. And joining us tonight, we are delighted to be joined by no one. (laughs) What a delight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, on account of a cancellation you may have heard, if you listen to the Minnesota Monday, uh, we are guestless this week. Yeah, if you could make it out. Uh, the Minnesota yeah. Monday. Apologies for that. It was a bit. It was a bit mental. Yeah, that garbled subspace transmission coming <laughs> through the ether on uh, on Monday. You yeah. might have heard me say that we were guestless, um, and as a result, it's a Andy versus Mitch episode this week. Yeah, and if you listen to the Minnesota, uh, you might also have heard what the film is. Yeah, um, I have gone for because it is my turn. Yes, of course. Last time I did, I picked pieces. Yeah, um, I think it was six or seven weeks back. Yep. Um, at pieces, and it falls to me to choose this time so after detention first time around uh-huh. uh and then uh saw six after that <laughs> i have combined my love of both overly smart allocate horror films right. and superfluous sequels yep and gone for scream four yes catapulting us all the way back to 2011 2011 yeah yeah um wes craven's swan song yes um, I, yeah yeah as it yeah. turned out to be scream four scream four so Mitch yes. tell us a little bit about your relationship with Scream 4 why you picked it <laughs> Scream 4 I remember it was the first Scream film that I saw in the cinema okay um, which I, I saw them all I saw Scream in the cinema when I was underage okay see um, when Scream was in the cinema I was 10 <laughs> So I know that my Fair enough. I know that my beard looks really good now, but it wouldn't have convinced anybody in 1996 that I was 18. You couldn't have done the two kids on each other's shoulder, or like one on the other one's shoulders with a long coat in the Little Rascals. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I didn't attempt it. No, and then and scream oh, Vincent three. Adultman. Vincent Adultman, thank you. It was really <laughs> annoying me that I couldn't remember the name of that character. That's funny. No, I so I couldn't have got away with that, and I think that realistically, I also probably couldn't have conned my way into screen three because that came out when I was fourteen. And obviously, as we've talked about quite a bit on the show, my interest in horror was quite late blooming. Sure. Yep. <laughs> um. So for me, it was quite exciting to see a screen film in the theater because I wasn't used to it. It was a first, and also yep. it was like a comeback, obviously, of kind of what I associated with being kind of one of the first big landmark things that people talked about when I was at school. And right. Like okay. So I went in kind of like with reasonably high expectations because obviously in the intervening years I've become quite a fan of not so much Scream 3 I think I almost feel like you don't have to say that yeah Scream 3 for anyone who hasn't seen it is terrible Scream 3 I think and I've spoken a little because when we announced that we were doing this uh, this week the conversation on Facebook was pretty lively right uh-huh. um, and a few people saying oh Scream 3 is awful and all this kind of thing and I think that there's an element of truth to that but I, <laughs> more but than an element of truth that's I, fact I think that where Scream 3 falls down is that it does all of the slasher tropes that Scream 1 and 2 make fun of but with none of the self-awareness it basically just does everything unironically that the first two kind of try and satirise right so I think that it's probably like a watchable slasher but a very poor entry into that franchise <laughs> 
I mean, and we can get into why I think this is, but I do, I do think that Scream Four is one a fairly convincing contemporization of it, right? And two, what I mean, I know it wouldn't have taken much for it to be a return to form, but I think it's a return to form for the series as well. Okay, like a lot of things about it really work, and on rewatch, I would concede that a few things don't. <laughs> um, but this is this is not a Saw 6 situation I will not oh, be right, deterred okay. I, a lot of the stuff that I found kind of charming about it on the first time out or the first couple of times out are still there uh-huh. I would say I've seen quite a lot more stuff right in the interim sure so maybe this is going to be one of those things that I kind of love for reasons that I can't necessarily quantify uh-huh. just because I associated with what was still kind of yeah, like a period of kind of a discovery. certain time yeah a certain time in your life a certain yeah, uh... yeah let's go with that um, uh, <laughs> did you I'm... have a beard when you saw this in um, 2011 did I mean, you have a beard I mean like statistically yes I would say probably right. I don't remember exactly but um, there have been very few windows in the last maybe 12 or 13 years where you haven't had a beard. Where I haven't had a beard. Because right, this, this would have been outside our friendship for sure. Oh yeah, this would have been a few years shy of me meeting you. Um, I hate being clean shaven, I look 12. <laughs> Mitch, you might have heard the show before, there's something that we do every week with our guests, and you'll be no exception, I'm afraid. I'm sorry, I'm not familiar, what is this? <laughs> so every week, mm-hmm. we ask our guests to give us a 30 second synopsis of their chosen film. Oh wow. Yeah. I've never heard of this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you're going to do the same thing. Um, okay, what a startling revelation for me to be hearing about for the first time. Yeah, and I have 30 seconds on the clock. Okay. Okay, are you ready? Give me a sec. No, no, you get too far. Everyone else gets a minute to gather their thoughts. <laughs> um, you got, your thoughts are gathered. Okay. You don't have that many thoughts. Oh, excuse me. Right, let's go. <laughs> Three, two, one. Have at it. Eleven years after the events of Scream 3, survivor Sidney Prescott has tried to put the ordeal behind her and forged a career as a writer. However, returning to Woodsboro on a book tour, the killings start again. And she needs to find the identity of the killer with the aid of her cousin Jill and her friends Olivia and Kirby before it's too late. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You still had like 11 seconds left. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty concise. Yeah, pretty concise. I feel you left out quite a lot there. It was just a kind of very much an overview. Yeah, uh, I mean, log lines are kind of my thing. Yeah, I know that's that actually. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is like nothing for you now. Um, but I think that we should jump in. So you're bringing you're bringing a big slasher franchise back after eleven years. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, kind of like the one of the main through through lines, certainly through the first two Scream films, uh-huh. is this kind of meta referential thing talking about it like it's a film. Yeah, this I think is one of the big things that helps as well. Uh, with this film was bringing back Kevin Williamson. Yeah, because he he did the plot outline for Screen 3. Having written the first two, he was only available to do the outline for the third, I, so. I believe. Yeah, 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 and I think Erin Kruger took over to write. Yeah, Erin Kruger also, uh, the Weinsteins brought Erin Kruger on to do a script polish on this, which uh, Kevin Williamson didn't take too kindly to. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I can understand why that feels like a little bit of a slap in the face. <laughs> um, bringing back Kevin Williamson definitely does this some favours. Screen 4 has the highest body count. I would believe that, yeah, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, the meta thing's kind of dialed up to 11 right from the get-go here. Right, yeah. Where you've got, and again, it's like one thing that I kind of like about this is a lot of the people that you meet, the cannon fodder in, right. the opening, uh-huh. in the opening sequence, are the kind of actresses that you that would be cast in slashers around this time. So the first well, two... Well, they were all leads in big, relatively big TV shows. Well, I mean, first two, uh, certainly. Uh, you've got Lucy Hale and Sinead Grimes, yep. who respectively, I believe, were the stars of Pretty Little Liars and 90210, Uh which were both pretty huge deals at the time. Yep. So they kind of have a kind of fairly obvious 
slasher exchange they're talking about um modern horror uh, they've got some opinions on the saw franchise that i don't necessarily agree with all the way i don't recall what was what was said about oh they're kind of talking about how there's like no character stuff going on and um it's all just needless bloodshed but then unfortunately they choose saw 4 to watch um Ooh. which is definitely one of the worst ones but yeah, um yeah. but anyway ghostface calls them and uh you pointed out as we were watching this that like his initial chat feels a little bit played out at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, certainly in the early going, as it unravels, it's very much business as usual for Ghostface. Although, nice to have still have Roger Jackson there doing the voice. Yeah, which I think is cool. And I think that as the film goes on, I think that the Ghostface stuff does get better. But I think that, yeah, it feels it's, I mean, it's supposed to feel a little bit like a carbon copy, but at the same time... But there is a reason for that, which becomes clear quite quickly. Well, yes, that is true. Because there's kind of a, they have a little bit of a kind of a very opening of a Scream film-esque exchange, and ultimately they both get killed. Yeah. By Ghostface 1 and Ghostface 2. But yeah, we inception out one level at this point, and we realise that we haven't been watching Scream 4 as such, we've been watching Stab 6. Yes, yes indeed. Which is, uh, yeah, the series of films, the franchise within the franchise, if you like. Yeah, which had its first outing in Scream 2. That's right, yeah. And um, again, two big TV stars from the time, True Bloods, Anna Paquin, Veronica Mars, Kristen Bell. Again, they're talking about the kind of how frustrating it is to see a good idea as being like rinsed endlessly in horror sequels. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Kristen Bell's character, in a very relatable moment, uh, stabs her pal for talking too much during the film. Yeah, something I'm sure you've wanted to do to me on many an occasion. Ah, now and again, but it's more of a it's more of a general public. I saw you thing. doing it a few times during this, but I was kind of puffing inside. Well, I just didn't really feel like you were taking it entirely seriously. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you were a little bit too readily distracted for my liking. Right. Um, <laughs> So yeah, again, just kind of a, another kind of like, like very sensationalized, very stylized death there, mm-hmm. and it, we inception out again, and we've been watching Stab Seven. Yes, this is being watched by um, a couple of kind of it's like less notables this time. Yeah, but Britt Robertson is one of them. Yeah, uh, who went on to be in in, um, in a couple of kind of teen comedies after this and things like that. But it's basically it's two more blonde girls that look like they could have been cast in a slasher film around this era. Uh-huh. There's another Ghostface standoff, I d- and um, <laughs> although I do like the fact that because um, these things, the dialogue in this, these sequences isn't throwaway, right? And uh, at this point, they talk about um, running out of ideas and making stuff up, and talking about how there's an element of time travel and in so and stab five in stab five, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and talking and talking about kind of making up fake mythology and stuff like that. I did kind of think if that was maybe a little jab at Halloween four or five, but I mean that could just be me. But I just and get six then as well. Yeah, and six, yeah. yeah. Because yeah, six obviously earnestly builds on that. <laughs> um so yeah, I um I think that, that might have been what they were kind of having to go at there or what that was aimed at. Mm-hmm. And again, there's kind of it's I don't like I say, I don't wanna I don't wanna dig too much into the mechanics of these because there's a lot of these kind of scenes in the film. Goes yeah, there's a hunt and chase thing here. Um, uh, both of them are dead. It kind of culminates in a, a flashback to, I suppose, uh, Rose McGowan's death. Yeah. As Tatum uh, Riley and death, Scream. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the garage door. Yeah, that's worth a mention. Yeah, um, kind of the opposite of that. And so much as the door comes down on her rather than lifts her up. Very true. Yeah, that is, that is that is correct. And this time, we really were watching the opening from Scream 4. Wait, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, no, more, no more films within a film. We've landed on just the film. Yes, that's that's absolutely right, yeah. Um, although my eyes were rolling pretty much constantly for Ghostface, uh, anytime he was on the phone or anytime he pops up in the early running, mm-hmm. still looks great. Oh, yeah. Still, uh-huh. a, still a good look. Definitely. And I think actually that, like say, I mean, I know what you mean about the repetition of this and how it feels a little bit kind of old hat. I think that the actual kind of commentary and the dialogue that goes on in this, these bits are pretty funny. 
Okay. I, and mm-hmm. I, I think that, like I say, if you're reintroducing those kind of elements, I think that this is a pretty clever way to do it. Yeah, I, I remember liking um, this opening sequence, um, this kind of montage, if you like, when I saw it in the cinema. I don't feel it's aged particularly well. Do you not? Nah. That's uh, that's that's maybe true. I think that I think that in context, like I say, I think when you were mounting the comeback for something like this, I think that, like I say, I've, it's a reasonably smart way of going about it for me. I, yeah. I, however... Pretty much out of this, we go straight into the meat of this thing because we're immediately we meet Sydney again. We do, yeah, but um, after some shite soundtrack music, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> that opening song uh, is fucking god awful. What, what I would say is, it's I think, bookended by dreadful songs. What I would say actually is though, I think that we might not have noticed it as much because, full disclosure, me and Andy we rewatched this together. Yes, we did, before yeah. we did this, mm-hmm. and um, I think that the fact that we had the closed captioning on. So we help. could see the lyrics. The lyrics were terrible. Yeah, the lyrics are, the lyrics are terrible. And I think that they might have just skirted under the radar were it not for that. Um, it might have just gotten away with being just music. Sorely missing from the film as Nick Cave's red right hand. Mm, wouldn't have gone to miss. Sorely yeah. missing. So Sydney's back in Woodsboro. She is, yeah. And, uh, yeah, God knows why. I would never go back. I don't know if I would either. No. But she, she pulls in and uh, the town is strewn with really tasteless Halloween decorations. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? Ghostface masks on every lamppost? Yes, like kind of, um, <laughs> yeah, c- celebrating a series of in-universe real-life murders. Yeah. Um, I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of inappropriate. Obviously, shortly it's explained that it's like a tasteless prank by like punk kids. You hate those punk kids. I do. <laughs> damn you have no time for punk kids whatsoever. Um, but yeah, Sydney is a successful author now. She's written a book, Beyond the Darkness? Out of Darkness. Out of Darkness, thank you. Yeah, Out of Darkness. Um, so, yeah, she's. this is just, just another stop on a book tour. Yeah, just another seems. stop, Woodsboro. Uh, uh, but booked by her uh, publicist and noted Mitch Bain dream girl, Alison Brie. Alison Brie, I absolutely love Alison Brie. Yes, same. Uh, she's just the best. She trained in Glasgow. She did indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah never our paths crossed. No. In a city of one million people. Oh, oh well. <laughs> What might have been? <laughs> I think that she is pretty good in this, but she's playing an absolutely hateful character. Oh yeah, almost instantly, um, I wished ill upon this character. Yeah, like her- her- horrendously uh, unlikable, um, which kind of like not so much here, but comes out a little bit as it goes on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We see them long enough to just see Sydney come back to Woodsboro, though. That's all this is really for. Um, and enough to know that she is now this um, kind of highfalutin author. Yeah. Uh, much to the chagrin of uh, Gail Weathers, played again, as always, by Courtney Cox. Yeah. Once the big author in, in her own right. Yep. Now just the sheriff's wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of having to have resigned herself to a little bit of a smaller town existence. Yeah. And yeah, obviously struggling with that a little bit, trying to kind of relaunch herself as well. Uh-huh. Um, just clinging desperately on. Has she, has she also has she done something mental to her face? Um, yes, I believe so. Right. I, I would say so. I think so. Yeah. Age also... makes fools of us all, Mitch. Very true. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just watch me try and get in and out of a chair, Andy. <laughs> it's uh, not so much watching you as hearing you. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 sim- the simultaneous bo- bones, bones cracking and me just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ugly, ugly scenes. Um, <laughs> but but um, we do at this point meet some of your key protagonists. We do. And I would say potentially also opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of what they bring to the table in terms of performance sure. as well. So we um, start with the, the lower end of the scale or the higher end of the scale? Here? Okay, so I'm going to go lower. And I have got mixed opinions on Emma Roberts as an actress. I think that mm-hmm. um, for the most part, I think that she does her best work in darker stuff. 
Right, okay. Uh, not necessarily horror, but stuff that deals in darker themes. Like, um, it's kind of a funny story, which if you haven't seen that, I think she's pretty good in that. Right. Like, psych ward comedy. Okay. Um, very, very good in that. Very good in Scream Queens, in my opinion. Uh, pretty ropey here. Yeah, I think she's god-awful in this film. Yeah, I think that she's pretty poor also. Um, yeah. You can see her acting constantly. Uh, yes, I, I would say so. I think that that's fair. She, she plays Jill, who we come to learn very quickly is a Sydney's cousin. Yeah. What we do have also is uh, their friend Olivia, who uh, we can, I think we can kind of gloss over to a certain extent. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. I mean, a little <laughs> bit of, like, I mean, a little bit of a red shirt for this purpose. Yeah, um, very much a red shirt. But, um, or a yellow bra. That's yeah. uh, the case, maybe. But um, also in this group of three, we have Kirby. Yeah. Played by uh, Hayden Panettiere, who she, at this point was riding the hero's wave still, would that be right? Most definitely. I think she even makes a little joke of it later on in the film. Oh, yeah, uh, I have powers. Yeah, I have powers. Um, but I think she's great in this. Um, Yeah, I have never found her to be bad in stuff. Uh-huh. She's never been a sore thumb in that way in anything for me. But I think that she's, one, hands down the MVP of the film, I think. Uh-huh. And also probably doing the strongest work of anything I've seen her do. Right. Um, I, th- I think she's great in this. Um, Kind of... Just this kind of like the right amount of kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Boz? Yeah, right. Just like it's <laughs> kind of like a ballsy character. Yeah. Um, kind of like doesn't like like takes no shit. Yeah. A lot of really good one-liners, and I think that a lot of the time when one-liners are written for those kind of characters, they can feel a little bit hackneyed. Uh-huh. I don't think they do at all. No, she plays it quite naturally. She's really good. Uh, by the way, have you ever seen pictures? She's married to Vladimir Klitschko. Have oh, I did s- know that. Have yeah. you ever seen photos of them side by side? It's it's remarkable. Yeah, it's like preposterous. No, she, she, like, um, she generally she genuinely looks like she's further away than him in the photos. <laughs> perspective. Yeah, it's a perspective thing. It's <laughs> optical like, illusion. It's like uh, from Father Ted. You know, like these cows are small and these cows are far away. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Uh, yeah, um, no, it's remarkable. But um, yeah, she's great in this. So then we've got Dewey again. We're reunited with Dewey. Yeah, Deputy Dwight Riley. I tell you, I didn't realise how much Scary Movie had imprinted itself on my perception of this. Right. Until when I was trying to write his name in my notes, I had an incredibly hard time not writing Doofy. Alright, oh, okay. Um but yeah, he's taking down decorations and kinda of cursing the fact that the like kids these days got no respect. Yeah, he's now the sheriff of Woodsboro, he yeah. He's yeah. uh he's moved his way up through the ranks. Yeah, uh, in the intervening eleven years he's come and a long way. Of course, still played by former WCW champion David Arquette. Wow, that is indeed <laughs> the thing he's most famous for. <laughs> Um, uh, at this point, uh, also separated from Courtney Cox. Yeah, which is yeah, which is kind of interesting when you consider the on-screen stuff there. Yeah, yeah, no, that I, that that um, I kind of forgotten that until you mentioned it, and um, no, that was interesting to rewatch it knowing that. Um, also, fairly expendable character alert: Deputy Judy. Deputy Judy Hicks, uh, played by Marley Shelton, yes. um, who does far better work in Planet Terror than she does here. Is given more to do. Yeah, I think that Deputy Judy is one of the most egregiously pointless characters in the film i don't know if i agree with that i think that i think that um i think i think that early on there's an obvious kind of not necessarily a sexual tension but you can tell that she's kind of got a thing for dewey Uh and she exists aside from that purely to be a slight red herring very briefly well i think that the kind of the, the the stuff you get between her and dewey at the start is pretty funny and I think that Gail kind of inserting herself into that in this kind of very brash way makes for kind of funny character stuff near the start and I can understand the purpose of it from that point of view I think as the film goes on 
and the film has to kind of shift gears into something a little bit more serious, it's at that point that they struggle to really know what to do with her. I think you could have taken the Deputy Judy character and scaled it down, um, removing the horse, Deputy Horse character, or uh, Anthony Anderson's character. Oh, we'll get to those. And just have them, just have two of them as cops and kind of scaled her back and you would lose none of it. Her impact on the film is so slight. No, like I say, I think I think that it's a sliding scale. I think that she becomes more more superfluous as the film goes on. Right. Um, but kind of once you get over that, uh, the kind of I guess the kind of sexual tension in the lemon squares thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think at that point, that's where it start. That's where it all starts to kind of stumble a little bit for me. Um, so Sydney. Yeah. Back hotshot author, and again, as you as you said earlier, we get a shot now of Gail watching Sydney on TV, talking about reinventing herself, talking about putting the darkness behind her, and so on. And we get this little kind of snapshot into the fact that Gail is one struggling to relaunch her career, and two struggling with generally the compromises that she's had to make in yeah. life since the events of Scream. And she's also not helping herself by the fact that she seems to be attempting to write her new book in a size twenty four font, bold one, letters. Yeah, block capitals, one and a half lines based. <laughs> It's like a kid's murder book. Yeah, you're not going to be able to pitch that to publishers, I don't think. (laughs) She needs to get her eyes checked. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Um, We get kind of a crash course introduction to two, again, two really important characters at this point. Robbie Mercer, Eric Knudsen. Yeah, from Saw 2. Saw 2 and 3, but I think definitely Saw 2. Yeah. Uh, So he's the obligatory um, AV club nerd slash horror aficionado. Mm -hmm. And his sidekick uh, comes in the form of Charlie, Rory Culkin. Yeah, possibly my favourite of the Culkins. Certainly, does very good work here, in my opinion. I think he's good in this. Yeah, I like Kieran as well, but I think Rory's just tipping it the now. Yeah, Rory's good. Yeah, Rory's good. I think. Um, I think that they both kind of unduly um, get kind of shouted down or not necessarily taken entirely seriously. I think, but well, under the shadow of the Big Brother, who, yeah. when you actually look at the, their output, I would argue that Rory and Kieran have done better work overall than Macaulay. Oh yeah, I would say that that's definitely true. Yeah. Again, this is kind of it's one of those things. It happens quite a lot with kind of high school set or high school set slashers and things like that. You get this kind of crash course circuit of the characters you need to know. Yep. Because we also meet uh, Jill Emma Roberts' character, her ex boyfriend Trevor, who is the worst. <laughs> he is not only the worst. He is this guy is given a masterclass in bad acting. Uh, I think possibly the worst performance in the film. For memory, you think so? Yeah, yeah. He's he. It gets a little bit better towards the party scene later on. Yeah, um, it, it seems to kind of tie up. But seeing this this early running and yeah, um, when he's trying to like kind of address the breakup with her in the hall yeah. and stuff because they've re- because obviously they've recently. I don't know up. if it's just the lines he's been given or the the actions he's been given to do within the script, but. I think he's terrible in this scene in the in the school hallway. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily lay the f- I would be reluctant to lay the blame at the foot of the dialogue in this film for pretty much any of the kind of perceived flaws of it because I think that a lot of that stuff it gets mostly right. Right. I think that as a piece of writing, it's pretty solid. Um, for like, I, I, well, we can get to the kind of exceptions that I think exist for that, but I think that overall, I think in terms of like delivery, commentary, one-liners working and stuff like that, I think that on on the page, it's funny. Also worth noting in this uh, corridor scene. Um, that there's a lovely bust of Henry Winkler. I love that. That obviously, and and kind of in memoriam to Principal Hembry. Yeah, who's often scream. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, I did notice that. It's a nice touch. (laughs) Um, We gear shift pretty hard into the actual kind of into the like meat of the plot at this point Uh because we we've got Sydney at a book reading and she's reunited with Gail and Dewey here. They turn up. I actually think that the the reunion there is kind of strange because it's. it's very affectionate. What, between Gail and Sid? It's not as frosty as I might have expected it to I be. I think, given, given everything fraught. that's going on between them, 
Yeah. Um, and the fact that she's now married to Dewey, who has kind of become this substitute brother for Sid, just as suppose as she's become the kind of replacement for Tatum. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think probably over time that relationship has mellowed somewhat. Yeah, the ice guess, has melted a bit. Yeah, now. the kind of the sins of the past, I suppose, in regards to Gail writing this really salacious book about Cotton Weary and Cotton Weary's innocence and the murders and all that. I suppose, I guess that over time and everything they've been through has maybe had a, a chance to thaw. Yeah, maybe. Let's go with that. But um, at this point. Obviously, there's no way Sydney can leave Woodsboro after this because a well, bloody yeah. cell phone and knife. Yeah, well, the news is just starting to break that uh, the two girls from the start are dead. Yes. Whose names escape me. Uh, Same. Yeah. Marley and... Somebody, yep. It's Marnie. Whatever the other one's called. Yeah, it's breaking news now that they have been murdered. Yes, correct. Um, and Dewey is zipping his way across Woodsboro to, to find Sydney. Because, um, obviously, any time Sydney's around, bad shit happens. Exactly. Yeah, off the back of this reading, they find um, a bloody knife and a cell phone um, in the back of Sydney's rental car. Yeah, all along with uh, torn up pages of her book. Yes! Um, Which might have been in there beforehand, I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. But, but she's a person of interest now, basically. As, as, as if she wouldn't have been before, but yeah, obviously now there's evidence in her car and she can't leave. Which I think, as a device to shackle her to the town, is fine. Right. If you I know, was Sydney, I'd go... I'm getting the fuck out of here. Keep the car; it's a rental. Yeah, but she's like a material. She's like a material kind of, you know. She's a person of interest. In I don't buy it. I think I think it's okay. I'm giving it a pass for that. I think yeah, you need to. Okay. I think you need to give. You need to construct something that means that she's not just being like, "See ya!" As soon as that happens, she so I just think that that's loves amazing. it. She loves it now. She's damaged. <laughs> she's damaged to a point where she gets off in this. Oh come on! Now. She is. <laughs> By the way, Neve Campbell here doing great work again. She could do this shit with her eyes closed now. Yeah, that, she could do, but I don't think that she's ever really phoning oh, no, at any no, point she, here. No, she doesn't. She doesn't kind of sleepwalk through it. No, she, not she's at good. all. Not at all. She's good. But yeah, you're right. Like, like I say, word is spreading. It's on the it's on the news. The words reach the kids. It's school. This escalating tension is punctured somewhat by more tension between Gail and Deputy GD. Uh, when Gail's going to try to insert herself into the investigation. Gail's still uh, spectacularly childish and cutting as always <laughs> when she says that uh, she goes back to make a point to Deputy Judy and she's like, oh, by the way, your lemon squares taste like ass. I, I, I still remember the the <laughs> cinema erupting at that line when uh, I went to I see it. The, I still the, remember that. And then Judy's like that to Judy. No, 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 they, 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 don't, they don't. They really, they really don't. don't. They don't. They taste lovely. Yeah, um, but I like this. I like this sequence, actually, because you kind of get this thing, like, say, where um, uh, Gail, who was obviously been instrumental in solving the murders before in the old films she kind of comes in storms into the office being like i've got every right to be here dewey basically has to explain to her that um she doesn't it's not her place anymore and uh, not that it ever was i guess not but um but yeah she has no business being there and uh at this point uh gail says she's going rogue off book yeah which i think again is pretty good stuff good character stuff i think there I like yeah that. very gail weathers very, yeah, very gail true weathers. to the character absolutely um some more hasty introductions. One of the policemen, one of the two policemen that we're going to come to get to know a little better later, yep. and uh, played by Anthony Anderson. Yeah. And I think it says a lot about how much of a pop culture hermit crab I am, that the thing that I remember Anthony Anderson from the most was Hang Time. Right, okay. Remember that? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. The basketball comedy drama thing. Yeah, um, uh, Yeah, but also an interesting little sidestep for Anthony Anderson here, because he was in uh, Scary Movie 3 and 4. Which, though interesting trivia, does nothing to help me with the fact that the scary movie films are now implanted all over my memories of screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like just like transplanting cast members into the serious one mm-hmm. uh, is not helping that case at all. 
But yeah, I, I, again, he's pretty good in this, but we can get to that. Can I, we've got this kind of very brief interview with Kirby, Jill, and Olivia. Yeah, why we, are they there? Is, that, is it because they received a phone call? They received phone calls, yeah. Right, um, okay. or, well, two of them did, but they were all together when it happened, right. is um, kind of my understanding. Alison Brie, again, Rebecca yeah. is her character's name. She's on the phone talking to someone. Yep. About the fact that she thought this was going to be like an absolute kind of waste of time and it's ended up being this... Um, Sexy, scary drama. Yeah, this massive, like, huge PR win and stuff like that. This scene exists for no other reason than to beat you to death with the fact that you're supposed to think that her character is a dick. And also to throw in the potential red herring that she might be somehow involved. Yeah, I guess so. In an attempt to ramp up not only the publicity of Sid, but kind of, I guess, the publicity of her client and, by extension, her. Yeah, Exactly. Um, I, uh, that's exactly right. And um, she has a brief encounter with Gail where I think that she very much channels Annie from Community. Right, okay, right. Uh, when she has to kind of backtrack on herself a little bit. Um, at this point, I would concede that the film is doing its best to cram as much exposition into as tight a space as possible. <laughs> um, because, And I think that the... I don't want to say egregious because it's not bad. It's not. Right. It doesn't ever feel like you're being kind of like a... It's overstuffed with information, but I do kind of feel like you're getting a lot of stuff. Uh, kinda, a reasonable pelt. She's kind of also doing the Laurie Metcalf thing from Scream 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, where she's just annoying Gail to the point where Gail just explodes in a really rude fashion. <laughs> yes, yes, she does. Um, which is actually, yeah, it's a really funny sequence, actually, that. But straight off, straight off the back of this, I think that the other thing that you get, kind of on the exposition thing, is that we've got um, Dewey talking to Sydney. Yeah, and, I, mean, I which, guess kind of offering up some of that insight into him, him and Gail's relationship. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of all the stuff you were talking about, about the problems they've had, the problems she's had in yeah. the intervening time. And she's got really, as we now know, because she's stormed away, she's got really itchy feet. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that's a big part of it, is that Dwight's, uh, sorry to call give him his Sunday name, uh, Dewey's quite content being the sheriff in a small town and yeah. living a quiet life. And she is used to far, far more than that. She's used to excitement and glitz and glamour and she doesn't have it. Yeah, and I've, and um, yeah, and I've, I think, like I say, I think that... It's all kind of very deliberately to kind of set up, give, giving you what you need to know to yeah. understand the characters and how they act going forward. But again, it's a perfectly good sequence. Another thing that I like shortly after this, and actually doubling back a little bit to a kind of defense of the Officer Judy character. Right. Which is not so much, I like. this isn't so much serving a practical purpose for the story, but just means that you, she's not presented as two-dimensionally as I think you might be suggesting. Because I think that she encounters Sydney when they're kind of like, so they're all back at Sydney's house kind of like talking to her. Uh-huh. Uh, they've got patrolmen outside. They're talking to her as they're getting ready to leave. And Officer Judy has a conversation with Sydney and she says, oh, we were in the same homeroom. We were in the same drama club, school, stuff like this. And she talks about it like it's all kind of like very immediate, very kind of rich memories. And Sydney doesn't remember her at all. And that's, and she kind of makes it out as not being a big deal. I, I think it's quite a sad moment. Yeah, but again, only that moment only exists to throw in the fact that she might have an axe to grind with Sydney. Yeah, but that's fine. Ugh, I, I, I just, it, to me, it's just there's plenty of people in here that it could be. Stop overcomplicating it. I don't know if I necessarily. I, I think that I, I don't know if it's necessarily just to establish motive for someone else. I maybe I'm giving it too much credit. Maybe I'm kind of rose tinting this a little bit. But I right. like I think that it's kind of like it's a moment where you kind of get something about Officer Judy. Okay. I think that there's kind of like, and it kind of feeds into the way that she acts around Dewey and the fact that she's so kind of like easily kind of uh, carried out by Gail and stuff like that. You're kind of getting this overall picture right. of a character that I think means that I don't think her presence in the film is worthless. And I think also that you learn a little bit about her. Like I say, I do have problems with what they do with her later, which is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but I think in terms of laying the groundwork, I think that she's like a 
perfectly acceptable character. She leads to one of my biggest eye rolls in the whole film. Oh, really? Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay, okay. So outside Sydney's eyes, we've got the two patrolmen, Anthony Anderson being one, Mm -hmm. and the other being Adam Brody. Yes. Um, Talking about big TV stars of the time. Yeah. um, Or kind of around that time anyway. Adam Brody, whatever he goes on to do, will always be from the OC. Yeah. For me. And I didn't even watch the OC that much. But it was one Jennifer's body. Yeah. As the front man of a low shoulder in that band. Um, but yeah, um, but I think that he's one of those people who will forever be shackled to that role for me. Right, sure. Which I guess is kind of strange given what he's doing here because it's quite far removed. But like, um, again, this is something that we talked about um, as we were watching it. What happens next shows once again that these kids have no sensitivity chip whatsoever. Sure. Because Kirby and uh, Jill think it would be hilarious to prank Olivia and pretend to be Ghostface. <laughs> well, it's not actual very... real kids have died yeah and, and people quite close to Joe's family mm. as well you would think she would maybe have a little bit more uh, she'd be like oh, I don't know this is a bit close to home for me yeah <laughs> but it's... nah fucking fire on it's, uh, yeah there's no like oh come on guys time and a place kind of thing they just yeah. bat in best moment in the film here is that we briefly get to watch some of uh, Shaun of the Dead oh fuck off <laughs> <laughs> it just made me go God, I just want to watch Shaun of the Dead <laughs> Like, don't look now in Ryan Rex. Yeah, I could just stop it right there, watch all of Shaun of the Dead, and then just put this back on. I was going to say, and then just go to your bed and not have to have this conversation with me. <laughs> uh, however, I think that this is one of my favourite deaths mm-hmm. in this film, and one of my favourites from the series. Okay, I yeah. think this is great. That's so, pretty full on. So we've got Olivia, who stays across the road, or next door, or something, from... Uh, well, her window is visible, visible. from yeah. Jill's bedroom window. From Jill's bedroom window. So you've got Kirby and Jill in one uh, bedroom, Olivia in a different house, visible from the window in yeah. her room. So they start off pranking her, then they kind of just have this regular conversation, then Ghostface calls Jill. From Trevor's phone. From Trevor's phone. Immediately um, catapulting Trevor into the uh, number one suspect... Absolutely. Position. Yes, yes, yes. He's certainly at this point a person of interest. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, Kirby answers it in a kind of protective best friend kind of way. Yeah. Being yeah. like, she doesn't want to talk to you kind of thing. Ghostface wants to talk to Jill. Also points out at that point that he knows that they're watching Shaun of the Dead. Ooh. He says he's in the cupboard. Yeah. She checks the cupboard. Good moment. He's not there. At this point, he says, of course... I never said I was in your cupboard. Nice work. Um, he was in Olivia's cupboard and he pops out a struggling shoes and Olivia is brutally murdered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, while uh, Kirby, Jill and eventually Sydney look on from the window in a moment that I thought, and you thought, we said it at the same time, very Halloween 6. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we said yeah we said it during the episode as well for Halloween yeah. 6. Yeah, but I, I think it's, um, uh, it's a great, uh, really good twist moment. When yeah. he's in the other cupboard, I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, and I think the effectiveness of this scene goes right through to kind of Sydney joining the fray, going See over what, there. What I said about Sydney loving this shit now, she throws herself into danger without the slightest hesitation now. That she is, loves it. Yeah, batters right in there, doesn't she? <laughs> doesn't she? Nary a moment's hesitation. Yeah, she's up those stairs and fighting with Ghostface again. And that brings me on to something that's always bothered me in the franchise. I tell you, when I talk about one thing quickly just before you go on, is when she goes into Olivia's room, the aftermath of the murder is savage. Yeah, it's, and it looks that's great. Carnage. That's carnage. And I, I like, I, I, I think that it's a really good kind of like. Well, I was gonna say it's like a kind of final send off for the sequence, but it isn't because a struggle then ensues, <laughs> the first of a few between Sydney and Ghostface. Yeah, and something that's always bugged me about the franchise in general mm-hmm. is the the beating that Ghostface endures. <laughs> Ghostface, yeah. 
I guess because we know we we generally know there's no supernatural element at play. It's just a dude or a woman in a costume. Correct. They aren't trained fighters. They're quite. But their aim's quite bad, presumably because of the mask. Ghostface is useless when it comes to any kind of hand-to-hand combat. Yes, I think also that um, it seems like the mask or the costume or whatever it is does something to his depth perception, constantly over or under lunging. Yeah, I mean, he gets kicked downstairs, he gets thrown against stuff, he gets stuff smashed off his face. The person under the mask never has a bruise. Well, I mean, how would you know? Because you see them without their masks, like, after it. <laughs> You know what I mean? No, They're all no. like large main characters as, they see it, <laughs> as it transpires. Oh, like, all... it's like immediately after the struggle when they come back. Yeah, and like, stuff. yeah, 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 they're yeah. All, they always turn up like immediately after it, like puffing and panting. Aye, and um, yeah, their faces are fine despite the fact they've had plant pots thrown at them and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, they've been thrown downstairs. There's no, n- no lasting injury. The thing about this is as well, and I completely agree, and while I do like seeing characters put up a proper fight uh-huh. when they're set upon, I think that because the ghost face attire is so like free-flowing yes. that... Whenever they get thrown in any direction or fall downstairs and stuff, it's inherently hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. like it's one of those yeah. things that it just means they that they shouldn't it... be a comedy character. Aye, but um, and I but I think that it just means and this is not and one thing I would say is that this is not a credible criticism of Scream Four alone. No, no, no. no I would no. say that like you can't sco- you can't aim it at this one without also saying it about the rest of them. It's ludicrous. It is. I think that, and I think I think it's something that because I think that the visual of Ghostface is scary. I think yeah. that the mask is scary and stuff like that. But the minute that there's any kind of like hand to hand or melee combat, it immediately looks dumb. <laughs> yeah, it does its best work from a place of surprise. Yes, or having the reach of a large knife. Yeah. <laughs> um, the police arrive on the scene spectacularly late, given the fact they were outside. <laughs> And um, Robbie and Charlie turn up suspiciously sharply afterwards as well. Yeah, uh, also worth noting that the whole time, uh, every scene that involves Robbie, he is wearing a headset which live streams his entire life on the internet. Yes, I'm on a a kind of like docuseries that he calls Hall Pass. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck off. Which is is very much a kind of like early internet um, kind of super snappy cool kids thing. Uh, It sounds like something from like a... It sounds like something really cheesy. It this like wasn't early on that. This is only like no. This is what I'm talking about. It feels like a, it feels like a total anachronism, though, because it sounds like something that would like would have been set up in your school in like 1999. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I get that. Um, yeah. So I think that, they've been really jittery, really stilted. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, like 56k. Uh, yeah, like like old security camera video footage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> precisely that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they turn up on the scene and they're accosted by Gil Weathers, who is like are now kind of trying to kind of get her rogue investigation off the ground and she um kind of tries to team up with uh, robbie and charlie yeah two generations yep. of intrepid journalists and all this kind of thing <sighs> at this point she knows nothing about them um, apart from the fact that they might be a road in to the movie buffs at the school which i'm sure she could have found on her own steam but i mean why would does she care <laughs> why does she care she's just under the illusion that the killer's probably in this class at school or this movie club yeah which is quite a fucking stretch. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a dumb theory, but it's also it's a leap. Okay. And I think that, like, yeah, but I think that enlisting the services of these two kids, um, on the basis of them being your road in to one of your crackpot theories for information that is not secret, yeah, uh, is probably um maybe putting the cart before the horse a little bit. And she's only going on the fact that horror movies have played quite heavily into the kind of psyche of the killers in the past. Yes, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that simple. Yeah, there's a, yeah, exactly. There's no evidence to support that anything beyond the visuals 
or the copycat element. Yes. So, but that again, I think that just exists to kind of like point you, like to have those guys team up and kind of like explain or kind of justify when they turn up together in places, things like that going forward. And to centralize your investigation into the whole thing. (laughs) I'd quite like to actually put together a super cut of Ghostface getting a doing and set it to the Benny Hill theme. Oh, yes. Or something equally stupid. So if anyone out there has got the time and can be fucking bothered, we would love to see that. Yeah. If it, it might already exist. Yeah, but like a supercut of Ghostface kind of getting his ass kicked set to something like the Mexican hat dance or the baby elephant walk or the Benny Hill theme. Yeah. Something like that. If somebody could make that happen, that'd be cool. I would say that we'd send you stuff, but we don't have any merch. We'll, find, we'll, we'll send you something. Yeah, we'll find yeah. something. Yeah. I've got a big pile of unwrapped Blu-rays that I've picked up at festivals. <laughs> <laughs> We lose Rebecca shortly after this. Yeah. Um yeah. it's it's uh it's an all too it's an all too brief appearance from Alison Bree. She's offed, but not before we kinda get this final um nudge about how bloodless she is in her pursuit of money. Because after um Sydney's been treated at the hospital for the injuries she sustains in that struggle with Ghostface, Rebecca appears and says, Oh, Random House wants you in for three more books. Um there's a blank spot in here, name your price, all this kind of stuff. So You can't buy Sydney Prescott like that. You cannot. And um, Sydney does sack her. Yeah. For being so bloodless in a pursuit of money, like I say. So Rebecca leaves, uh, goes down the lift, and what happens is a protracted sequence of something that is a massive bugbear of both of ours, I believe. Uh huh. Which is characters talking to themselves for extended periods of oh time. Oh my god. She has a full conversation with herself. Yes, I would maybe maybe say seven to nine sentences. I hate it. Uh, yes, it I actually don't like this scene at all I've got no problem with what happens next we'll get to that but I think that the way it's set up with her coming down the lift and talking to herself continuing the conversation with herself out of the lift and walking to her car I hate all of it but that <laughs> again is not a criticism unique to uh, scream for that no. is something that irritates me far and wide and I think is painfully overused in general I think that we've all kind of been like if you're on your own you say something like oh for fuck's sake yeah or oh come on where's my fucking keys yeah but uh, yeah never never something like this yeah and uh, it's really in-depth stuff uh yeah she's kind of like convincing herself that it's not over uh, her business relationship with sydney hasn't properly ended you know like she's being like oh she'll come around all this kind of stuff it's pretty infuriating not even alison brie could save this material i'm afraid not ghostface calls her i think that the ghostface call is good i think that this is uh-huh. the most yeah. convincing ghostface stuff possibly in the film yep when he's kind of taunting her um i think that that's pretty strong her car won't start of course it won't come with the hour come with the mask <laughs> Yeah, she's uh, trying to start the car up and Ghostface leaps onto the bonnet or the hood, um, depending on where you're from. That's another thing that annoys me about Ghostface. Is this because it's a nonsense way to surprise someone? Because That, yep. He's also holding some kind of red wire, which I'm guessing must be some kind of starting cable. Yeah, surely. I don't know. I'm not a mechanic. Just flexing some knowledge muscle there. Very nice. (laughs) You can see that my knowledge of uh, car engines is... uh, pretty strong and he, j- he jumps on the front of the car holding the red car cable <laughs> holding the power cord <laughs> uh, but yeah something else that annoys me about Ghostface is the ease in which he can slink around and disappear okay because the minute he jumped off that bonnet she would be like oh he's gone there he goes running away up there <laughs> or there he goes ducking down there but he's, he's able to move around sneakily under that car without rustling, without bumping against the car. Like, uh, to the point that he can readily jump out at someone maybe five or six times in one large open space with no corners. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's fucking preposterous. Yeah, I can understand that as a frustration. Yeah, but I, I couldn't do it. 
to me that takes I certainly couldn't that takes ninja levels of preparation and I guess nimbleness yeah which I'm, I I lack I mean I I, mean, I lack the hand eye coordination to reliably pour a cup of tea like <laughs> I think that like yeah doing anything with this lab like moving around undetected in this way with his level of like gazelle like grace I think is definitely beyond me yeah I have seen you come dangerously close to stabbing yourself in the eye while you eat your dinner. <laughs> I was gonna say that was one time, but it wasn't. No, no. That's, that's nonsense. No, but again, I would say that that's kind of that's something that you kind of just you you've got to just be in for at this point. But all this stuff annoyed me more tonight. Like if I was to go back and watch Scream One, the it's bit because you're watching it with a contrarian's eyes, Andy. It's because you know I was defending it, and you're looking for things. To, you were looking for things to have a go at. There might be truth in that. Yep, I think so. <laughs> because a couple of things that you've said so far, I, I think are credible cre- credible criticisms of the Scream franchise, but not uniquely of Scream 4. No, no, no. I mean, like I was just about to say, I could go back and watch Scream 1, and there's a very similar moment in Scream 1 where Sidney's trapped in the, the sheriff's car, and Ghostface is waggling keys and mm. kind of working his way around the car, comes in through the back. Yeah. If we were to put Scream on now, I'd be like that. Ooh, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you can't give one uh, a pass and not the other. <laughs> But now, I don't know, maybe I'll go back. Also worth noting, uh, the runtime of Scream 1 and Scream 4 is the same. But this feels much longer. Yeah, but again, and I, I will get to precisely why I think that is. Um, I know why that is. Yeah, yeah and I, th- I think I think we actually probably agree yeah, on that. Cover that in some depth, I suppose, at the uh, time. Um, we get Dewey, um, the end of Dewey's uh, having a press conference about the murders at this point. One of my favourite nonsense lines of dialogue here when he says, the less I say about that, the better, so I'm taking questions. <laughs> But it doesn't matter. He doesn't really get to really take any questions because at that point, uh, Rebecca's body is uh, thrown from a uh, high level onto the car, which uh, kind of diverts focus from uh, the Q&A portion of the evening. I'm sure Joey was more than happy with that. Yes. Um, so we get our wee look at the cinema club that Robbie and Charlie host at this point. Um, yeah. Alongside Sydney and Gail. And I think that this scene mostly exists for uh, some of what's kind of become at this point a st- kind of stock and trade for Scream as a series, which is kind of like very smart, alecky, winky, self referential uh, chat about horror film tropes. Yep. And how they feed into narrative and kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen in a way that's supposed to be kind of like very wry and very self referential. Yep. Also introducing the terms Shriekle and Screamake. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, forced another couple of eye rolls out of me. Um, <laughs> yeah, off. not so hot on that. But at this point, um, one thing actually, and you know what I was saying? I was saying that like uh, the hall pass thing sounds like early internet. Yeah. Right, and, and, um, and you pointed out correctly that this isn't early internet. However... 2011, I noticed, was sufficiently long ago that someone could unironically call the internet the net and no one thinks that it sounds weird, which it definitely does now. <laughs> the web. When she was like, oh, you're just going to upload it onto the net? And I was like, when was the last time you heard someone say that? In the film, The Net. <laughs> Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> it probably was Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> but Robbie, and I like this stuff as well, and again, it's a little bit of first driving, but I think that it's the kind of kind of smart genre talk that you've kind of come to expect. I like this when it's Robbie just talks a, about it. It's just an evolution, of, I guess, the, the kind of chats between uh, Randy and Stu in the first film, and yes. then the kind of college class chat between Randy and Timothy Oliphant and Sarah Michelle Gellar and all that in the, the second one. Exactly. It's, it's a, just the natural progression it, of that. And I think that a lot of these kind of elements are brought up today in a way that is pretty convincing for the most right, part. Right, okay. And I think this is one of the better examples of that. Robbie talks about the necessary internet or viral element of a 2011 ghost face. Although he doesn't say the word viral because I'm pretty sure it didn't exist in 2011 in this context. I'm pretty sure he doesn't say viral because I'm not sure when that term uh, applied. 
where right. it kind of came on the go, but I think it was after 2011. Prove me wrong, I'm almost certainly wrong, open to retractions and so on, but I think that if you were writing that scene now, there's no way that the word viral wouldn't be used. But it is true, I mean, there is stuff out there of people who have committed horrific murders and their footage was recorded and it found its way onto the internet and mm-hmm. their crimes and stuff may have been kind of glossed over and forgotten and I guess with a haze of history and the haze of time. Yep. But because those videos exist out there, they've got a fame and a notoriety beyond what they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. So, I mean, it is true. There's a, a kind of element of internet immortality, um, I guess, if you do something horrific and it turns up on the internet. Yeah, I, th- and I think that that's kind of why um, this sequence works so well. Yeah, and it's it's probably the thing that I like the most about Scream 4, is this idea of kind of taking the heinous acts that you've done and trying to use them in a way that causes you to... I guess kind of outlast the crime but yeah. I don't think the film does a good enough job of keeping it going that way because while the murders and stuff that are being done in the film are being recorded the end game isn't that the killers as we'll call them just now the end game isn't that they will be famous for their crimes the end game is just fame the end game is just fame which yeah. would happen anyway if they survived it yeah I think that um I I think that there's an element of truth to that. I think that I if there it's a strand I would like to have seen developed a little more. Yeah. Because I think that there's probably around in 2011, and again I'm open to being proven wrong about this, but there probably wasn't a ton of stuff that already existed about people trying to become internet famous through doing these kind of like atrocities and things like that. No, I mean it wasn't. Is it? You didn't have like Facebook Live. You didn't have things where you could. Yeah. Where you were immediately uploading absolutely monstrous behaviour. Yeah, and I think that like, and if and I think that some of the films in the last few years that have tried to do that haven't done it as well as some of this stuff does. Right. Okay. You know when you think about things like you know Nerve. Do you remember yeah. Nerve? Uh-huh. Um, also starring Emma Roberts. Also starring Emma Roberts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, I was going to say Unfriended Dark Web, but I love Unfriended Dark Web. So <laughs> still not seen. Cheerfully it. withdrawn. Um, but yeah, I think that when they're talking about this and they're talking about the fact that they think that I'm a, a fan of the Stab series is almost inevitable behind it and stuff like that I'm not gonna lie like all this kind of meta stuff is right up my street yeah I know that I love that yeah, I know that yeah this is kind of it's the same and reason I, it's the I'm, same reason why community is my favourite I'm into show. it and I, yeah. I, I like it but I just don't think the strand follows through correctly to the end of the film that might be true but I think that the journey's fun yeah and I think that um, but and like the rules of the remake stuff when I talk about all that kind of stuff um, and having to outdo the original and I'm not also convinced that that's ever the intention of a remake, is to outdo the original. Well, this crossed my mind when I was watching it, actually. Yeah. I I mean, I think that I, I don't th- think it's ever the plan. It's maybe complimentary. It's maybe for money. But I don't legitimately think anyone gets into doing a remake because they think that what they're going to do is going to eclipse or outdo the original. Do you think that if it does happen, it's more like, it's more of a chance rather than an actual aspiration? To oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the only one I can think of off the top of my head that comes close to, and probably does, is Maniac. Maniac, yep. Best one. Best horror remake, in my opinion. Not that I've seen enough, but it's my favourite. Or oh, The Fly, but it's such a loose remake. Yeah, <laughs> that exactly. That it doesn't really count. Yeah, I kind of think that with The Thing as well. Yeah. But yes, so they kind of talk about plot beats from horror films and inevitably they talk about the fact that the best way to have a kind of third act bloodbath is to have the characters converge at a party. Again, I think it's funny when they talk about um, that and then inevitably the next thing that they say is that night, not only is there a party, but it's a party set in a remote barn and what they're doing is marathoning the stab films. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, like, I think that the kind of like the what the fuck moment you get from Gale there is kind of like really funny. 
and all that stuff. So it's, it's set up really well because it's the, the that scene is quite smart allocated, but it's quite serious, mm-hmm. and it sets up to a punchline that I wasn't expecting. That I think is genuinely pretty funny. Yeah, the stabathon itself. Yeah, I love the stabathon. Yeah, that's that's an idea that really that really appeals to me. I wish more things did that. I know that in uh, Texarkana in the US, every year they have a town that dreaded sundown screening. Oh yeah, that kind of got, that that kind of got referenced in the remake of the town that uh, the town that dreaded sundown, didn't it? Which I thought was quite clever. Yeah, as well, yeah, that's an underrated remake actually. I'm quite a fan of it. We were lovely on though. Yeah, so um, uh, Kirby goes to Stabathon. She's like a representative in the room first. She's the first one there as as a kind of onlooker. Yeah, and you got Robbie and Charlie hosting it gail shows up as well she's found the location they were kind of reluctant to give it to her but she's found it do you think that by turning up there in a ghost face mask she is more or less inconspicuous i think it's more the the way she's moving around being very much sticking to the sides being very sinister planting surveillance equipment i think considering she's supposed to be like evading detection and she was once a kind of um very intrepid journalist She's hilariously bad at concealing herself here. Yeah, I mean, if she had no mask on, she'd be swarmed by these people because she's Gail Weathers. Yeah, but she was also the only person in the room with a, sc- with a, with a star mask on. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Also terrible at hiding surveillance cameras considering she stands in front of the screen for a good long time before putting a surveillance camera under the screen. Yeah, exactly. And the, the cameras are all, like, they're not hidden. They're no, like, they're just kind of sat on they're like, they're like They're like obscured from one angle. Um, but yeah, they're in plain sight. Yeah, pretty much. So while she's and keep... also they're fucking huge. They are like, massive. They're not, yeah, they're not, like, they're not like pocket cameras or little like kind of wires. Like <laughs> they're it's fucking true. gigantic. They're yeah, like, like full CCTV. Like, cameras. Yeah, like wall mounted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty funny. Speaking of funny, another kind of cutesy moment that I liked. Yeah, I think at this point, her slinking around with the ghost face mask on is blending in in the same way that Nicolas Cage blends in in The Wicker Man by dressing as a bear. <laughs> so you don't necessarily know it's him, but you know it's not right. Yeah, you know it's not the woman that was supposed to be in the suit. <laughs> exactly. Yes, precisely. Can I just say at this juncture, I really want to see all of Stab. I want to see all of Stab, yeah. <laughs> um, I also like the fact that when Stab starts, it's uh, credited to Robert Rodriguez. Um, so Gail heads back to her car as soon as she's planted the cameras, and uh, planting the cameras pretty much a fool's errand because the minute she sits down and checks her monitor that she's got in her car, they're immediately getting um, covered up. Obscured. Or obscured, yeah. And do you know why? Go Because they're fucking huge and they're not hidden. Yes. <laughs> There's no great mystery to why that plan didn't work. Quite the intrepid investigative journalist. Yeah. She's obviously got quite rusty in the intervening decade. <laughs> uh, fuck's sake, man. Right, let me just say something else here. Right? Okay. Gil gets attacked by Ghostface here. She does, and I just want to say, also, I like the fact that um, like the Ghostface reveal there is good. When you, when you see him coming after her, through the perspective of one, the one remaining camera. Yeah, kind of similar to when uh, Randy's on the, the sofa in the first screen film mm. and Ghostface comes in through the back. Mm. Kind of similar to that. I really... I, I really wish they killed Gail there. Yeah, I think that that would have been... A real, like it would have been a great cat amongst the pigeons moment. Yeah, but it would it have would been have... huge, like when Randy dies in Scream Two. That's exactly the comparison I was about to make. Yeah. yeah, like I think that it would have, it would have given you, it would have been like a Ned Stark moment. It would have made you be like, everyone's expendable. Yeah, um, which I think that the third act of this film would have benefited from. And it would, I mean, it would devastate Jerry. It would be horrible, but uh, I think they could but... have done something really cool with killing Gale, so that I guess her ongoing legacy had some richer meaning. And yeah, I just I wish they'd taken a real gamble there because she's bang to rights. Yeah, right? she's 
at, she's at Ghostface's mercy. Yeah, and I think that yeah, it would have been it would have been a very admirable decision. I think. Yeah, it's, well, I'll always look at it and go, that's, "Yeah, it's a missed opportunity." Yeah, like, of course you're kind of happy that your your three kind of main heroes have made it all the way through all the films. But I just really, like you said, that I think it would have put the cat amongst the pigeons in a really interesting way, and it could have led to some interesting stuff. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. It's a very safe decision. Yes, disappointingly so, I think. This kind of, a lot of, while this is going on, kind of escapes the notice of the people that are actually at the party. (laughs) Because they're hooting and hollering and behaving like, uh, I guess, like the audience in the cinema at the start of Scream 2. Yeah. Which I couldn't, I'd have had to leave that cinema. Yeah, same, same. I'd probably had to leave the Stabathon. Ah, uh, yeah, I might have as well, yeah. You also get enough character stuff here to establish, and I think it's been hinted at before, that Charlie has it pretty bad for Kirby. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. What does it mean? I don't think we can blame him for but, like, yeah. No, but, no, but, but, yes, um, I think that, like, that's kind of, that's seeded a little more at this point. We lose two more here, and it's our two cops. Yeah. I quite like the sequence. I think that the... I think with the third act on rewatch, I think that some of the kind of meta stuff in the third act feels a little much. Right. And I think it feels smart alecky in a way that is less endearing than I remember it. And I think that it's... <laughs> and it's and I, but I don't, I don't think that... And I think that it's, it still works kind of fitfully in the last half hour or so. But I think that when they're having the conversation about... Um, how being a movie cop sucks unless you're Bruce Willis and all this kind of thing. Um, cops always die in film. Yeah, I seem to remember thinking that that was really funny when I saw it initially and when I kind of was a bit like, yeah, okay. This time, you know? And they are. So it begins, the descent. It's not, but yeah. Like, um, Andy Anderson's character is stabbed in the head. Yeah, his head must be made of cheese because that knife goes in extremely easily and comes back out very easily. Yes, um, but he's stabbed right in the forehead. Um, still, <laughs> um, still manages to uh, fire off a wee one-liner in death, though. Yeah, yeah, why not? Fuck Bruce Willis, uh, which actually, yeah, which which I mean is not a great one-liner, but when you've been stabbed in the head, it's not bad. And then um, uh, um, Adam Brody's character, he's also killed. Yeah. Well, Phantom Planet plays softly in the background. <laughs> the most unsettling moment in the film comes up here for Go me. Go on. When we cut back into the Roberts household and we notice that Jill has a U2 Joshua Tree poster up <laughs> in her bedroom. Yes, yeah. I always think um, in films, and I know that Jill's not pitched as being especially alternative, right. but I always love it. So when you have a character, whether it's male or female, who's like, you don't understand me, Dad, and they go to the room, I love what posters they put on the wall to make sure you know that they're alternative. Yeah. Because they always look like they've been randomly grabbed from a hot topic. You know, when it's like somebody's got a Cradle of Filth poster and also an All-American Rejects poster. (laughs) (laughs) It's always such a complete fucking grab bag. Well, in this case, somebody has just went, kids like you too. (laughs) (laughs) Kids like the Joshua Tree. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like a Dave Matthews band poster yeah, like, flag I've ever Nobody read. likes you too. <laughs> I was going to say, excuse me, but anecdotally, I mean, I don't like them. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but um, I, I did think that was funny. I didn't clock it until you pointed it out. But... Immediately made me wish ill on Jill as a character. <laughs> Um, I don't. I don't want to rip on you two fans too much. I do. I'm fine with that. No. Hey, hey, hey. I wonder if we'll get more uh, feedback like we got when we slagged Creed. Oh yeah, yeah. uh, Who feature on the soundtrack to Scream Three? Mercifully removed from this. Not necessarily replaced with anything better. No, no, no. no, But um, but don't figure here. So Sydney gets the call. Gail's been stabbed. Yeah. Uh, she's not dead. 
but she's been stabbed. Jill's also gone. She's gone to Kirby's house. Yeah. This film's hurtling towards what should be its final standoff. <laughs> so, really good death here, I think. You're not so hot on it. Yeah, I don't know if the physics of it would work particularly well. Um, okay, so just for clarity, um, before Sydney can go to uh, Kirby's house to get Jill, Ghostface appears again. Oh, uh, eye roll moment. Go on. She sees Ghostface reflected in a set of wind chimes. Yeah. Fuck, fuck right off. That, but those right. were Chekhov's wind chimes. They were referenced yeah, earlier. She was like playing with them. Oh, fuck off. What's the, what's going to happen with these wind chimes? Yes. Um, uh, oh, but yeah, they're trying to barricade the Nonsense. door. Um, Jill's mother uh, tries to wedge the door shut by kind of sitting on the ground and wedging her feet to try and force it closed. Yes. And she's stabbed through the letterbox. Yeah. Which I think, as an idea, is a good death. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's quite a good moment. I think that your question about the physics of it is a fair one. <laughs> what is it about the trouble? Just, uh, there's something about the way the knife comes out of the letterbox, which makes it look like it would be too awkward to do. Right, okay. But I'm nitpicking. It's a slasher film. Who gives a fuck? Well, that's just true. Well, like I say, I, I, I think it's a good death. I also think that it's like kind of a surprising death. I'm not so struck on the tell Jill I'm so sorry oh, yeah. thing. Not so hot on that. But Yeah, I mean... As a visual, though, I'm pretty into it. I, I like Mary McDonald. She does good work. But, uh, yeah... Not too hot on her in this at all. I want to point out at this point that straight after this happens, when Sydney goes to leave, Deputy Judy appears and looks incredibly guilty. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, and I would say that this is the point where I would maybe concede that the reason that she features beyond this point is to seed the idea that she might be a suspect. I don't think that there's any other reason for our character to have really have any more input in the film beyond this. You know what she was... <laughs> Oh, it would have been great, yeah, yeah. Kind of wish she was involved. Um, we get some pretty corny Gale and Dewey stuff here. Yeah. Promise me, catch that motherfucker and so on. <sighs> yeah, a little bit hackneyed. Um, however, um, it has been me- well, it's mentioned at this point as the kids gather to watch Stab Seven. Yep. Because, as Charlie says, nobody cancels my festival. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, they mention at this point that the party should be the ending, but if you're going to redo it and if it's going to be modern, the party is going to be the false ending. Yeah. This is foreshadowing the film's biggest narrative misstep, and we'll get to that. Yeah. Also, uh, although they are supposed to be watching Stab 7, yeah. they are in fact watching Stab 6. I didn't clock that, but when you pointed it out, I was like, oofed. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty big. Yeah, because they're watching the Lucy Hale one, aren't they? Yeah. Which is which is the first one, which is Stab Six. But they do clear as day say that they're going to watch Stab Seven. Yep. Yep. No, it's uh, that's true. It's a really good spot, actually. So I'll give you the point for that one. Um, but yeah, like I said, they preemptively call the party the false ending. Trevor appears again in this kind of like, remember this guy, he might have done it moment. Uh, also dressed like exactly like Sydney's dad from Scream 1. Which you caught and I did not. But yeah, that's a, that's a good shout. Uh, Robbie and Charlie are understandably worried at this point because Gail's been stabbed kind of on their watch. Yeah. And they're wondering to what extent, because like, she got stabbed at Stabathon, which was their event. Um, they're worried about being embroiled in that. I think there's probably a legal issue involved in uh, putting on the Stabathon as well. I think like that there are it. multiple legal issues involved <laughs> in putting on the Stabathon. Robbie, in what is an interesting choice at this point, uh, nips outside to do a bonus episode of Hall Pass by himself on the patio. While drinking a whole bottle of whiskey? Or tequila or something. Yeah, something, it's, some brown alcohol. Yeah, straight. Which, when I was at high school, even now, 
if I t- if I drank half a bottle of that shit, I'd be dead. Yeah, I think school or now are definitely the two points where I was I'm poorest equipped to do that. It's it's, not, it's it's some point in the middle. I wouldn't have managed it, but I would have been able to give it a more credible go. Not now. Bookended by vomit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that um yeah I'm uniquely poorly equipped to handle that now. But um yeah, uh, yeah no, his capacity for uh, alcohol was pretty uh, pretty hefty. Um, I got to say it's at this point as well that I I decided that Kirby is absolutely my type. A woman, I like. Sure, you're working. I like forwardness. Okay. I find it incredibly attractive. Right. And uh, she's very forward here, and uh, in her, in her advances towards Charlie. Yeah, she puts the moves on Charlie here, and uh, classic movie kiss interruption. Yeah. Uh, they're centimeters away um, when Trevor comes storming in, and uh, Charlie storms out, which I think probably not the best response to that. To that. Really. Uh, wouldn't it be me? No. Hypothetically, if that ever happened, that's yeah. not how I'd handle it. No, no, no. I, <laughs> I wouldn't be swayed by someone entering the room when I was, what, 16, 17? No. Uh, <laughs> no, exactly. Um, after he storms out and Trevor sits down and starts watching the film with her, possibly Kirby's best moment. Yeah, and Trevor's, I would say. Trevor's finest moment in the film. Yeah, that's is true. Really... But when you see her kind of like getting increasingly more incredulous for the fact he's sitting there and she's like, who even invited you? They get the fuck out of my house. Yeah, it's great. It's really, really funny. Cutesy set up for Ghostface approaching here. Again, it's a, it's a technology trick um, when you, can, you kind of see him through... The ever-present head camera. Yeah, I think like I'm... This is often the element of like where kind of see horror that tries to weave technology into it. I'm not averse to that in a way that some people are, but I think you've got to be careful with how you do it. Right, sure. And I think that a lot of the time with stuff like that, you can be like, oh, that's a cute setup, but it's not especially scary. And I think if that's the case then I sometimes wonder exactly whose benefit it's for. The best example I can think of right now is um, Paranormal Activity 4. Right. Remember with the uh, is the connect when you can see all the green dots oh, that's all right. over the room. Yeah. You see shadows moving and you're like, huh, but it's not scary in the least. <laughs> and I kind of feel like that a little bit about the Ghostface reveal here. Where right. you're kind of like, oh, it's through a camera because modern. But also you're like, oh, it's Ghostface. And kind of just a little bit. On. Yeah, I it's I don't think it's especially effective, but we lose Robbie here. Yeah, Robbie's been a good character, I think. A good, um, a good, um, a good performance as well. Pretty, yeah, pretty decent performance overall. Nothing wrong with Eric Nidson's work here, or indeed in Saw Two, actually. <laughs> right. Just in general, like, um, pretty good. Yeah, he's been a pretty good Randy surrogate for this film, I think. Yeah. Um, sorry to see him go, but yeah, his time has come. And this amps up in a... But, what? <laughs> That's time has come. His time has come. Ghostface storms the house after Sydney arrives. Uh, Sydney's knocked off the roof. Uh, absolute gold-plated opportunity for Ghostface to kill her here. Opts for a clothesline instead of a sab. <laughs> Flying in the face of all that we've learned from the movie franchise spawned by this film. Yeah, like, um, yeah, it's like, no, it's like for the literally, potentially the first time ever, he goes in with, um, yeah, like... Um, Is it not like a knife dunk? Does he not like done I, I just thought it was just a straight up clothesline. We're cannonballing into the end now. We sure are. Um, Charlie returns, um, but Kirby won't let him back in. Well, doesn't I think it, I think at this point you've got to treat everyone as a suspect. Absolutely, and he's and in fairness, he's not just being like, "Oh, hey, it's me. Let me back in." He's covered in blood. Yeah, like it's 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 you know as evidence goes, it's pretty convincing. So Kirby doesn't let him back in. Like I say, a reasonable, uh, reasonable course of action yep. for me. However, Ghostface comes back, uh, knocks him out, and we get a little bit of a callback to the first film. 
Because it's horror trivia time. Horror trivia time, and uh, yeah, it's Charlie's trussed up much like Steve in the opening of Scream. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this is like an absolute kind of completely just straight-faced callback to that. Yeah, blonde-haired lady, status under stress. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 exactly. One of the one of the better kind of genre commentary moments, the final question that he asks her. Yeah, yeah, yeah the like, remake's question. Which remake, and then she cuts him off and just reels off a massive list of ones that had been made in the previous maybe 10 years or so. Pretty funny. She goes outside to un- untie him. He kills her. Well, we don't actually see Kirby die. Let's go with that. I'm very much of the opinion that Kirby is the su- is a survivor here. But he's, she's certainly attacked. Yeah, and stabbed stabbed a couple of times. Stabbed a couple of times. Yeah, I think that um, motive-wise, I think that Charlie's stuff here is aged pretty poorly. I think that like, um, stabbing the girl that you like because she's taken too long to like you back. Yeah, yeah it hasn't. That's, uh, and I guess in the... In today's uh yeah i I just remember thinking i was like he was a bit of a sour taste yeah uh yeah i don't think that's great incel prick exactly precisely that though so charlie goes after sydney next she escapes but is then stabbed by jill twist twist so jill's been in on it this whole time yeah now the second family member of uh of Sydney's that has tried to kill her. Yes, she, uh, stopping only to uh, shoot Trevor in the penis. We oh, wait, get... yeah, I wanted to talk about that for five hours. Like, <laughs> she, yeah, she, go, she goes off on a giant tirade about, uh, I guess, Trevor kind of humping and dumping her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to kind of, I guess, to kind of drive home her point, she blows his cock off with yep. a gun. Yep. Christ almighty. Yep. Don't shoot his cock off clean off at this point we, so we get that which is a pretty severe moment and then uh, we get kind of motive um, <laughs> in as much as she's fed up of Sydney hogging the family line light sure growing up in that family means that kind of like uh, she never felt special because it's still a pretty um, still a pretty limelight family to grow up in I think like I also think that it's like I also think that it's really weird to be jealous of the family member that survived all of her friends being massacred yeah. And your mother, like, your, your auntie was murdered by people, like... Yeah, I think that I think that this this entire thing is kind of strange, although we are probably dealing with a kind of a... A, a troubled mind. Yeah, a bit of a... A, dam- fractured, a fractured mind. A bit of a damaged individual, I think it'd be fair to say. It seems like that during this whole exchange between Sid and Jill, like, Sid doesn't seem the least bit perturbed by the fact that she's just been stabbed. Like, it is literally nothing to Sydney anymore to get she, stabbed. She makes a really credible effort at just getting on with it after that happens. Oh, hi. Um, this is second nature to her. Um, around this time again, again the kind of the the meta stuff starting to get just a little bit stifling at this point. Uh, you know, this whole your ingenue days are over, remakes, reboots, and things like that. She is also, uh, as we've discussed, terrible uh, in this film, uh, Emma Roberts. But I she think... is pushing this to heights of villainy that she cannot pull off. Um, also, um. What starts off as a kind of effective and kind of disturbing thing after Sydney falls unconscious, mm-hmm. um, very quickly deteriorates on, into unintentional comedy. So, um, so Jill grabs Sydney's hand and uses her nails to scratch her own face. No, she uses Trevor's. Hand. Sorry, Trevor's, Trevor's hand. hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To Trevor's scratch hand. Her face. My mistake. Yeah. yeah. Um, to just kind of give evidence of a struggle. But at this point, she has. It's worth mentioning that she has stabbed Sid again, who is now presumed dead, and has also killed. Charlie. Correct. Yes, Charlie's yeah. away. Yeah, we lose Charlie. That's right. We get yeah. a kind of replay of the uh, scene where Stu and Billy are stabbing each other from the end of the first scream. Yeah, that's right. Um, and yeah, she betrays Charlie as well. They're yeah. uh, kind of betraying the plan of those two being the last surviving 
Yeah, she wants to be a final girl rather than a surviving kind of twosome. Yeah. So yeah, to, but the idea is to pin all this on Trevor. And uh, she does this by kind of like trying to set ah, out... Ah, actually, the plan was for those two to become infamous by posting videos of their kills online, right? Right. But then, in her killing Charlie yeah. and becoming the sole survivor, all the footage stuff would be completely wiped out anyway. That would That plan would be over. Yeah, it's kind of like um uh maybe and maybe so that explains why that thread hasn't followed through to the end. Yeah, because maybe kind of like uh there Charlie's looking at it as more of this kind of yeah internet thing, but Jill's motive is way more about just being the new Sydney. Yeah, being the center of attention. So yeah, in fact, maybe just kind of like a little bit of an attraction about the yeah. Kind of I'll, I'll take sketch. it back. It seems to make a little more a little bit more sense now. Yeah, yeah. um, fair play on calling yourself on that because I was about to fly straight past that and not comment on it. So yeah. I appreciate your honesty. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, she's trying to pin this on Trevor, and she takes his hand and scratches her own face with it. That is genuinely like pretty uncomfortable to watch. I really like that moment. You're like you kind of you really feel that scratch. I think. Similarly, when she kind of takes it and uses his hand to tear out a clump of her hair. Yep. Those things are great. <laughs> All in for that. At the point where she then holds a knife and kind of walks into a wall with it to stab herself in the shoulder. Not sure that was necessary. Also quite strong, though. Um, Could have been done just as easily by having Charlie stab her. Yeah. That was kind of felt like a stretch. At this point, I think that she's done enough damage to herself uh-huh. to kind of fill out that part of the plan. To get away with it. I don't think that what she then needed to do was run into the wall. In a picture frame. Yes, thus shattering it and collapsing on the ground. That, I think, a bridge too far. Two bridges too far was then throwing herself through a glass coffee table. At this point, what you're watching is nonsense. It verges on physical comedy territory at this point, or like a fight club. I think you are in physical comedy territory there. And at this point, the police show up. She is taken away. Mm -hmm. And there, I think we can agree what you have there is what should be the film's final shot. Yeah, you have Jill being taken out on a gurney and as she's been taken out she has all these flashes. She's mobbed by the press. That's how she's going into the hospital I think she's coming yeah. out in the ambulance and into the hospital um, and she just has mobbed by the press she's got all these camera bulbs flashing in her face. At that point she's got what she wanted. It would have been another bold move perhaps to kill Sid. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that would have been a great way to end it was just with her kind of smirking on that gurney. Um, yeah. Like yeah, because her face kind overjoyed. of yeah, because she looks kind of dazed, and her face kind of contorts into this small smile, and it flashed to white. And I remember in the theater being like, "Oh, great ending." Unfortunately, yeah, uh, it doesn't end here, and I think that a lot of the problems on rewatch really kind of come to the surface for me here. Right. So Jill wakes up in hospital. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'm just like, no, 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 no. Immediately, this feels totally superfluous. Um, we find out that Sydney's alive. Yeah, that would have also been a cool place to end it. Yeah, true. You yeah. Could, yeah, you could yeah. have ended it there with the revelation that Sid was still alive. It also and, gives the crucial maybe set up to a sequel if you want one. Yeah, you can leave it open like, fuck, she's going to tell everything or she's going to come and get me. Yeah. That, uh, or I'm going to have to go and get her. That would have worked. That would have yeah. been great. So maybe it's fair to say then that where the film really loses me is when she sets up and pulls all the stuff out of her arm and she goes to Sydney's room. Yeah, she becomes this, for such a slight girl, she gains superhuman strength. Yeah, so I mean, like, she she beats Dewey about the head pretty severely with a bedpan. Poor Dewey. And, um, (laughs) like, lobs um, Sydney full pelt into um, a glass case of medical supplies. She throws it around like a ragdoll. Yeah. Um, and at this point, there's this protracted speech, and she talks about the fact that um, this should have ended back. This should this should have ended back at the house, and all this kind of thing. Ultimately, the combined efforts of Dewey, Officer Judy, 
and Sydney. Gail. And Gail. Means that um, ultimately Jill is subdued. She's electrocuted. Um, Fuck off. Uh, which is which again is dumb. So at this point, like I said, I mean, it's I. It's not I, just dumb that she's electrocuted. I think it's the method of electrocution that's dumb. That she is, her yeah. noggin is zapped by defibrillator paddles. Yeah, no, that that's it's stupid, and the, the entire <laughs> way it's presented is dumb. I'm I'm just I'm quite happy to just concede that maybe like the last eight minutes of this film or so are yeah. nonsense. A problem arises here that I mentioned once before on this show, and okay. it was that um, it was when I was talking about behind the mask, the oh, li- right. the rise uh-huh. of Leslie Vernon, which you might remember that I said that I overall really liked. Yep. But I thought that where that film tripped itself up was when it needs to drive itself to an ending. And when it does that, whether it likes it or not, kind of has to fall into the tropes that it has spent a film making fun of. Yeah. And I think that that's the part where your smart alecky element is the hardest to stay true to. Um, and I think that just like you can be as winky and self-referential about how these things are supposed to end as you want. Actually doing it in a way that isn't tiresome is exceedingly difficult. And it's something that the film gets almost entirely wrong. Okay. I and I would concede that right out of the gate. <laughs> like um like I, I like I've all the other issues that I have with this film I find to be largely forgivable. Um I think that the last ten minutes or so, let's say ten minutes, I would say are just one giant misstep. Yeah. And I think that it's probably an attempt and I think that the kind of it's starting to feel a little bit too nudge nudge wink wink anyway. And I think it just feels like a really ugly overplaying of that hand. Yeah. And it just means that a story that could have been pretty leanly told feels really quite baggy. I would agree. Yeah, yeah I would absolutely agree with that. That being said, because we are out at this point. Yeah, but out, yeah. Where uh, well, we see Jill's presumably dead body, specifically her face looking dead in the camera, while um, reporters outside kind of talk about her as being this kind of survivor in this American. Yeah, they've got stuff. no idea of what's happened within the hospital at this yeah. time. Um, but yeah, Sid kills someone else with a gun, putting them out of their misery. I think she does that in every film. Yep. Um, shoot someone dead um, but yeah bang deed shite yeah I I still stand by most of the things that I like about this film okay I think that like say I think that it is a especially off the back of Scream 3 um, I think that bringing it back was kind of a punt I think that um, 10 years is a long time 10 years is a long time and 12 years since the last good one or th- uh, 13 years since the last good one mm-hmm. you know I think that it brings a lot of the kind of the elements that people expect into the 21st century in a way that feels pretty convincing okay. feels pretty organic I think like I say I think on the page it's really funny I think that like I say it probably goes a little bit over the score with some of the um, kind of with some of the meta chat but I think that overall shores that stuff up pretty well Performance-wise, I think it's all over the map. <laughs> Correct. Um, I think that you go from probably... Yeah, I would say that your spectrum is Trevor to Kirby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And those really bad extras that are behind uh, the, the, at the press conference. Oh my God, they're incredible. Yeah, um, guys, if you own this film or if you have access to it, um, if you've rented it for this episode, go back to that scene. Yeah, there's a couple of overly effusive uh, extras in the background of Dewey's press conference. Furiously snapping photos with giant cameras and talking to each other um, in this kind of very like bright and very urgent way. It's really, really funny. I didn't notice it until you pointed out. But, <laughs> oh my God, an absolute riot. But um, yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of really good kills here. I think a couple of the new characters that are introduced are really strong. I don't think it gets everything right. Like I say, I'm quite happy to admit it goes clean off the mm-hmm. royal in the last 10 minutes, but I think that in an entry to a franchise that didn't necessarily need reviving, 
and one that was on the downslope. Yep. I think that it's definitely a return to form, and I think that it incorporates some of the kind of technology of the time in a way that I think is pretty convincing. Overall, I think for a Scream film in 2011, it's not about as good as it gets, but it's certainly good. Okay. Go on. <laughs> I don't know. I've got a real hard time with this film. I think. Okay. I. What do you think? What do you think are the kind of like strongest and weakest points? Strongest and weakest points, I would say, and you've kind of hit the nail on the head. The ending is by far the weakest part. It's a disaster. Yeah. Um, it's it's terrible. Um, I feel like this is a film that could have gone in some really cool ways. Mm-hmm. It could have done some pretty daring, pretty bold things. It has the opportunity to do some really cool thing, particularly when it's so much about remaking and revitalising and reviving old franchises. Yeah. Um, I think if they had killed Gale or killed Sid yeah, I think or it killed w- all three of those main I, I protagonists... Think, I think it wimps out in a couple of it crucial wimps moments. Out, it wimps out massively. Um, I think if you were to remove those three characters from from the equation, mm-hmm. it would make it feel far more like a reinvention which is what they were going for, because they keep playing for this to this reinvention, this remake culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have also liked the film to have just been called Scream, <laughs> and uh, for them to have <laughs> no. pushed so much harder down the remake route. That's something I've always... Because they, they push it so hard anyway. Don't Halloween me. Yeah, no, I'm totally Halloweening you. Um, um, but that was something that hit me tonight. I was like, fuck, they, could have, they should have just called this Scream. I think some of the writing is terrible. Really? Uh, yeah, some of it really I find really jarring. Some of the meta stuff for me just, like you say, just doesn't work. Some of the tech stuff I feel felt outdated in 2011, like we've said. Uh, I think we're on the the same page for a lot of this. Yeah, I th- I, th- I think that we um, I, I think I think that it sounds like we go along the same road quite a bit, and at the end we kind of like, but we ultimately sprint, splinter off in slightly different directions. Yeah, but I think we, what we can both agree is that. It's a terrible, terrible ending. It's a terrible ending, yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. But I think that I would love to know if that was the original ending. I don't actually have that information. Yeah, I'd be curious. Also, um, if anyone out there knows anything that we don't about that, then by all means, let's know. What I would say, though, I think the other side of that coin is that what we can bo- definitely also both agree on is that it's a damn sight better than Scream Three. It wouldn't be hard. I think Scream Three is uh, pretty much a misfire from the get go. Mm-hmm. Ah, it's, it's it's yeah, it's it's really poor. Yeah, I think. Um, in a, from in, the, right from the minute I think Cotton gets a phone call from Sid's mum in, yeah. in his car, I think mm-hmm. from that point, I was like, no, no, no. The voice changer can now copy dead people's voices. I was like, nah, yeah, I'm out. And then yeah. it goes downhill pretty quickly from there. I'm assuming we're not seeing any more of these. I don't believe so. No, I think this was widely considered to be the last one. Like I say, Wes Craven, um, this was the, his last feature film. Uh, he was really the driving force behind these. Yeah. Uh, he said he didn't want to even really come back and do another one unless he felt the script was as strong as the first film. Mm-hmm. I don't think it comes close. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, like, I mean, the, for as much as I like this, I'm, if, if that's the condition, I'm the, surprised that it was enough. I think to, that's the best that. script he saw. Okay. But I don't think for a minute that it was the it's the best way this could have gone. No, I don't think so. But I think also if you like if you separate in your head what you think the film should have been and think about what it is. Yeah. Well, gonna, like it, it feels to me like it's passable. Mm-hmm. Um it's a perfectly serviceable fourth installment and a franchise that didn't need it. It probably didn't need a fourth, no. No one asked for it. <laughs> it was just something that they knew would make a lot of money, and it did. Can I ask you a question? Or do you think that this is a better entry into a franchise than Halloween 2018? Uh-huh. No. Mm. You think 
that Scream 4 is better than Halloween 2018. Fuck it. Yeah, I do. I'll right. take a lap. Right? Cool. <laughs> I, I, I don't. No, that's fair. So yeah, a little bit of a difference of opinion on that one then. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But do you prefer this to Sussex? No. Oh my God. <laughs> that's pretty damning. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty severe. So not even as good as Sauce 6 then? No. Wow. <laughs> it's difficult for this to not feel like a loss if that's the case. Yeah. But um, the chat going into this from everybody on social media was really engaged. Um, I really want to hear what everyone thinks of this. Um, about the points we brought up, if you think we've missed anything. Definitely want to get into that. We'll let you know how to get in touch in just a sec. Before we go, I also want to touch on one other thing. Right. Which is that um, we've got a couple of days left to run on our Anna and the Apocalypse competition. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so in association with Blazing Griffin, we have got uh, two prize packs to give away. Um, we've been running this competition all week since Monday. So two different international poster designs for Anna and the Apocalypse and um, a novelization of the film. So that'll be two winners winning two prize packs containing two posters and one book. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, and we're running it on Facebook and Twitter. Yes. Uh, so get in amongst those and uh, you can see exactly how you can be in with the chance of winning it is exceptionally simple yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but by always get along check that out like I say we'll be closing that on uh, on Sunday so yeah again so we'll be announcing the winners on Monday's minisode yeah so be sure to listen in for that we will be back on Monday with all the usual stuff um, if you want to get in touch before then loads of ways to do that Facebook and Instagram Strong Language Violent Scenes you can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC and you can email scenes at gmail.com yeah, and if you fancy doing something nice for us, you can pop on to wherever you listen to us and just leave us a little five-star review or a like or a follow or whatever the fuck. Yeah, a subscription. Yeah, yeah, just whatever. Whatever the, the terminology is for whichever service that you prefer to listen to us on uh, has. Just on, give us the, the maximum possible <laughs> feedback. Uh, that would be smashing. Um, and in the meantime, yeah, just keep listening. Tell your pals if you think they might like it. Yeah, yeah. And thanks to everyone who has told their pals. Yeah, because uh, there's been a few of those. I've had a couple of people get in touch lately. Yeah. Um, also, actually, you'll appreciate this. Um, someone who I didn't, um, who is a friend of mine from school, who I d- had no idea listened, uh, texted me for the first time in ages this week, trying to organize, just catching up. And he was like, how's it going, you gears and clamps pervert? And I was like, ah, Fair enough. out of context is a weird <laughs> thing to say. But I was like, oh, I see you've been keeping track. Oh, you've heard. <laughs> My reputation precedes me, sir. (laughs) So we'll be back on Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, your lemon squares taste like ass. Good night. Good night. They don't. They don't. They really don't. They really don't. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean. 